Yeah, so this week we're going to talk about evangelism as a spiritual discipline. Basically, evangelism as um, a, a way to grow, to grow in the faith. And just to remind you, the aim or goal of evangelism is to reconcile sinners to God through Jesus Christ so that they can worship him who is their creator. Now, in the first classes, the first two classes specifically, we learned from scripture that all of the spiritual disciplines are part of all of our life of worship. So we, we learned that worship is not just singing in church. Some people think, think of that, they think, oh, the praise and worship, that's the singing in church. But it's not. Worship is, involves all of our life. It involves the things we think, the things we say, the things we do 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And Jesus made that clear, at least uh, in, uh, in many, many places, but at least in one place in his witness to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, where he establishes a link between evangelism and worship. So it says in John chapter 4, Jesus said, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So, yeah, when, when, we, when the Lord motivates us and enlivens us to go and share the gospel with other people, we're... Jesus is saying, we do that. God's working through us to draw people to himself so that they worship him. They worship him in spirit and in truth. So there's a right way to worship God and a wrong way to worship God. Actually, there's lots of wrong ways. (laughs) God's glory is the goal of evangelism. He is most glorified when redeemed sinners praise and worship him for his saving grace These are the kind of worshipers that God is seeking. Welcome, welcome, Serena. Come on in. So we see that the call to be a follower of Christ is a call to all of life worship. This all of life worship includes evangelism. In regard to missions, one author, very famous author, John Piper, has written, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. So, worship is. Worship is the goal of the church. Missions exists because people don't worship God. Now, first we're going to talk about, on your outline here, um, the origin of, and content of evangelism. Where did evangelism come from? Is it just a New Testament thing? Or is it all throughout the Bible? And what does it involve? So let me just ask you guys, what do you think evangelism is? What is evangelism? What? Telling people about the gospel. Telling people about the gospel? Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. Anything else that you guys would add? I think it was like in Romans, when Paul went around 
spread the word. Yeah. Yeah, he spread the word. That's right. He spread the word about Jesus and what he had come to do. And then their hope is that they persuade others, that they change their minds and their hearts. Yeah, that they change their minds. That's right. That's the, that's the desire. Um, so a simple definition for evangelism that my good friend Max Stiles wrote is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. We want to persuade them to believe it, to believe Jesus. No, I'm okay. I'll run and grab one over there if I need it. It'll come back. (laughs) Evangelism comes from the Greek word evangelion. Evangelion is the word that we call gospel. So, Here's an older definition of evangelion. This word is a Greek word. uh, This is from uh, a famous Puritan, so you'll recognize the old English language here. It signifieth good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that maketh a man's heart glad and maketh him sing, dance, and leap for joy. (laughs) Okay, we don't speak like that, do we? But that is what evangelism is. Evangelism is sharing the good news that makes men sing, dance, and leap for joy. Now, did the idea of heralding or telling, announcing the good news pop up randomly in the New Testament? No, it didn't. Actually, it comes from the old. The good news or the gospel in the New Testament is directly linked to what good news would have meant in the Old Testament. So if we were to go to... uh, Passages like Isaiah 40. So if you have a Bible, it might be good to go to Isaiah 40. I've got it here in my notes. Isaiah 40, and we're going to look at 6 through 11. Sometimes I quote this verse when I, in the prayer before I preach. Isaiah 40. Isaiah's, eh, it's about halfway through the, the whole Bible. Isaiah 40, and we're looking at verses 6 through 11. Um, Ashwin, do you want to read that for us? Uh, Yeah, 6 through. 6 through 11. Just read it as loud as you can. A voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and Gently lead those that are with 
Yeah. Okay, good. So where in this passage do you see the idea of good news? Verse 9, where it says, O Zion, herald of good news. Herald of good news. It says good news twice, doesn't it, in verse 9? Herald of good news. You know, a herald was someone who announced news. Um, You know, they would go into the towns and say, hear ye, hear ye. And they would announce news, perhaps from the king. Uh, And it says, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So it's announcing God, good news about God, that his arm rules for him and his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. That means his payback. That means probably to those who didn't worship him. Now, just before this passage, in verses 6 through 11 of Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 3 uh, describe the one, the special one who was sent to make paths straight. And that was fulfilled in John the Baptist, and then eventually Jesus Christ came and walked on those straight paths, so to speak. So so, uh, John the Baptist kind of announced the good news that the Messiah was coming. So then in verses 9 through 11, we see that the, the voice crying out was announcing good news. This is what the gospel writers pick up on when they speak of the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel accounts apply the idea of this good news toward the coming of God himself in Jesus Christ. And chapters 39 and 40 in Isaiah are all about how the exile of Israel is over and God is coming with grace. So prepare yourself, is what they're saying. Likewise, John the Baptist is saying that God is coming in Jesus Christ, so prepare yourself. Repent of your sin, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Welcome, welcome. Yeah. Across the way. So it's no surprise that Jesus starts his ministry by quoting from Isaiah 61. This is an example of Jesus himself applying that meaning of good news from Isaiah directly to himself. So I'm going to read that for you. It's in Luke, um, Luke chapter 4. You may remember it. Jesus goes into the synagogue. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. They didn't have Bibles, they had scrolls, so he had to open it or maybe, maybe it was sideways, I'm not sure. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and then he said, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying it's happening. I just read Isaiah who prophesied 600 years ago, but it's happening now. 
So, and the main point of that passage, all that talk about captives and releasing the oppressed is talking about captives to sin. The Bible says that our that sin rules us, but through Jesus Christ, we have the good news that he's paid the penalty for our sin, and if we die with him in his death, then we're raised to new life through his resurrection when we put our faith and trust in him. So, how would you explain the gospel? This is kind of the basic Christian Christianity 101 question. What's the gospel? Serena, can you tell me the gospel? It's the good news. It's the good news. Okay, it's the good news. But you tell me the tell me the message though. Okay. The message is in summary that God created the world perfectly and he created us as well to live in perfect obedience to him. Yeah. Yeah. And so we disobeyed. And so the consequence of our disobedience was death. Mm-hmm. It separated us from the loving relationship that we initially had with our creator. And so we then and so the consequence of sin had to be paid for and yeah, we were going to have to pay for it. But yeah. God was also loving that he also promised to send someone a savior that would um yeah satisfy this consequence of our sin. And so that was satisfied in Jesus. Mm. Um, who he sent, his son, that he sent many years later, who was finally able to... Since I didn't talk about the serpent, now I can't talk about him, but yeah, who was finally able to um, die, that death that we were supposed to um, um, die in, in, as a result of our sin. So he took it upon himself. Took it upon himself. So did he, he have sin? No, he didn't. No, he didn't have sin. And he was just like us. Um, so because he was just like us and he didn't have sin, so he was able to be the perfect um, sacrifice that could um, appease God's wrath over our sin. Yeah. Hence, those who, he, then he, he died, and then he was risen from the grave. God yeah, that's what I'm talking about later today <laughs> in the service. Resurrection, yes, exactly. So he was risen from the grave, and so as a result, he defeated death. And yeah. so all those that believe in the sacrifice as a cover for their own sin and yeah, believing in sacrifice will also have would have his righteousness because he had no sin. Yeah. Um taking us their own like righteousness and yeah, they won't have to pay for their sins anymore. All right, and good. You can be a member of Covenant Hope Church yeah. because you know the gospel yeah. and I've heard your testimony. <laughs> yeah good good Um, that's the gospel you know we kind of oftentimes I I think of that outline that you all are familiar with maybe God mankind information about Christ and then a response how can we receive what this free gift of eternal life that Jesus offers it has to be received and it's received by faith Repentance from sin and faith in Christ. Yeah, good. That's the gospel. Um, J.I. Packer writes a more full definition of evangelism than than I uh, quoted Max Stiles saying earlier, and he says this, the gospel or evangelism is to present Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to sinful people in order that they may come to put their trust in God through him to receive him as their savior and serve him as their king 
in the fellowship of his church. I like that. I, I really like that. Trust God through him, receive him as their savior, and serve him as their king in the fellowship of his church. It kind of includes um, all of what it means to be a Christian, you know? Uh, so anyway, that's a definition of evangelism and, and where the idea of evangelism came from. And we see it comes from the Old Testament. Any questions? Any questions that you guys have? Was no? that J.I. Packer? That was J.I. Packer, yeah, in his book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Oh, okay. It's a good book. It's a good book. No questions? All right. I'm going to press on. Uh, Roman numeral two. Um, evangelism is inseparable from the life of a, and I might insert the word growing believer. Evangelism is inseparable from the life of a growing believer. We've talked about growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it means growing in all of life worship. Evangelism is part of what it means to worship God with all of our life then. So as we're conformed to the image of Jesus, we will reflect his evangelistic character. Because Jesus went about announcing this good news, himself even, right? So if we're going to be like him, we're going to be doing that same thing. If he brought the good news, growing as a Christian means growth in the area of bringing the good news to others. Now, we evangelize first and foremost because we have been evangelized. Our desire is to share the gospel, and it comes from the very character of God. So um, I want to read to you a longer passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. So... 2 Corinthians 5. So maybe it's a little bit longer. Maybe you should just listen. Or you can, you can find it if you want, uh, Ashwin. It's in 2 Corinthians. Hey, Michelle, come on in. Um, it's okay. You can sit where you want to sit. Second row is pretty good. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to look at verses 9 to 11. So Paul says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That's God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. There's that word persuade. But what? We are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, I think he means crazy, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So he's saying he died for us, so we live for him. 
Then he goes on in verse 16 to say, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, in a worldly way. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, in other words, we didn't believe in him, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. I'm I'm just going to stop there. Ambassadors for Christ. So our desire is, as Christians, is to herald the good news that people might be reconciled to God, and it comes from the fact that he saved us, just like Paul is talking about, hey, we, we looked at people in a worldly way, because we looked at Christ from a worldly way, but we don't do it any longer. We know he's the son of God. We know he came to save. So we, once we believed in him, it changed our view of everybody and everything. And so we go out and we try to share the good news with everybody. Um, we view all people as potential worshipers of God through Christ. He saved us, so we know he can save them. So now we're going to talk about these uh, lettered, uh, uh, these letters A, B, and C, and D underneath uh, Roman numeral two. Um, four truths about evangelism that show how it's inseparable from the life of being a growing Christian. So first of all, evangelism is a matter of obedience. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself has commanded us to witness. Now, next week's sermon is going to include verse 21. And there, Jesus says to his disciples, he's appearing to them after his resurrection. He says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So that's a command, I'm sending you. And and we know that in Matthew 28, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, it was the apostles that were with Jesus back then in Matthew 28, but Jesus says, I'm with you to the end of the age. And we know that the apostles are dead and buried. Um, so he must be talking to us as well when he says, I'm with you. In other words, I'm with you and other believers to the end of the age. So these commands are for us too. So we are to be obedient to Jesus in sharing the gospel. Letter B, evangelism is a matter of gratitude. The Bible speaks of worship and evangelism as the right response to God's saving grace. As those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, shouldn't it be our joy to proclaim his love and mercy to those all around us? It should be. And so our attitude should be that of the psalmist in Psalm 116. He says, 
What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? In other words, what should I give to the Lord? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord and I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. He's saying, I'm going to talk about the salvation that I've received. I'm going to tell people. Letter C, evangelism is an expression of godliness. So as God's people, we ought to commend the gospel to those around us by the way we live. Our lives should consistently be characterized by holiness in such a way as to make our Savior more attractive to unbelievers. Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Capture souls. So in a sermon preached on this verse, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, said that it teaches us two key points. The first is the life of the believer is or ought to be full of soul blessing. We've been blessed in our soul. And in the second place, the pursuit of the believer ought to always be soul winning. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, to be a soul winner. A soul winner is to win people to Christ. And of course, we know that ultimately, and we're going to talk about that later, ultimately it's Jesus who draws people to himself. So evangelism is an expression of godliness, C. So then D, evangelism is every Christian's calling as a part of worship or all of life worship. Now it's common, it's common for some Christians to think that evangelism is a special gift and it's the responsibility only of those people who have that special gift. So uh, they, they look to, for example, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, which says, And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And people might say, well, see, there's evangelists, but I'm not an evangelist, so I don't need to evangelize. But the point of the verse is not only those who have the gift of evangelism should evangelize, but everyone should. The verse speaks of how God has graciously given different gifts to different people in a variety of ministries so that the church can be built up. So while not everyone might be specially gifted to carry out maybe a, a, a ministry role of being an evangelist, you know, that's what they give their time to, especially. Um, the fact remains that all of us are called to be witnesses for Christ. So certainly some people maybe are particularly gifted in that area. I would say, for example, that the, the focus staff are, most of them are gifted in evangelism. You kind of have to be. Because <laughs> you go on campus and there's just not many Christians. Um, and we can think about the responsibility of everyone to evangelize. For example, if we look at 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter says, For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, so he's saying every Christian is really a priest. Now, what does that mean? He's, he's, and, and that these priests, Christians, proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness. Now, the, the church is a kingdom of priests. And what does a priest do? Do you all know what a priest does? Kind of what would you say? Like a mediator between God and man? Yeah, a priest is a mediator, that's right, between God and mankind. That's always what the priests did. So, so for example, in ancient Israel, the priests uh, took care of the temple, and the temple was this particular place where the people would come to worship. So they facilitated the people coming and worshiping God. And there had to be priests. God set up the priesthood. But now in the new covenant through Jesus, um, Peter is saying that everyone who's a Christian is a priest. So we mediate between God and people. And we do that when we share the good news with people. We're facilitating or making it possible for them to come and worship God in spirit and in truth. Um, and so you can think about that, that um, passage that I read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul says we're ambassadors. So really he's saying kind of we're the priests. We're the ones who announce that you can come and worship God. Um, now, why, why do you think we don't evangelize as much as we should. What are some reasons that you all can think of? It's not a priority. Pardon? It's not a priority. It's not a priority. We have other priorities. But why, why, why is it not a priority? What, what would some of the contributing reasons be? Maybe like fear we are not, we're not enough. Yeah. Yeah, like we, we don't have the rights. To evangelize, like we're not okay. holy enough, I think, mm-hmm. um, to put out the gospel. Okay, yeah, you may feel like, hey, I, I've got, I'm a sinner. Yeah. I've got too much, too many sin problems. I shouldn't share the gospel. Yeah. I need to, I need to get yeah. more holy before I start sharing the gospel. Okay, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Or fear. You mentioned fear. I feel like a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Like, uh-huh. you know. God's going to do what he's going to do like I need to do. Okay, okay. Yeah, maybe people are have a wrong view of sovereignty and they kind of think, oh, God's, if people are going to get saved, they're going to get saved even without me. Well, that's true, but Jesus said, go share the gospel. So it's kind of being disobedient <laughs> and, and misunderstanding sovereignty, right? So Roman numeral three... Um, this, these truths that we're going to go over help us overcome a lot of these reasons. Um, either we think we're not holy enough or we 
are afraid, maybe we're afraid that people are going to look down on us, and they will. <laughs> we can see that evidence in Scripture, and some of you maybe who have shared the gospel with others, you've experienced that. I know I have. Um, but there are reasons that we should understand that our evangelism is empowered by God, that God supplies the power. Um, and the first uh, point to understand is that God is sovereign in evangelism. He's the one ultimately drawing people to himself. In his grace, he has chosen from the foundations of the world sinners whom he will save. It says that in Ephesians chapter 1. He's promised that he will gather a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. It was uh, a confidence in God's sovereignty that gave the missionary named Adoniram Judson the confidence to travel to the foreign country of Burma uh, a long time ago and live there for 40 years. Um, and believe me, Burma was a difficult place. And here's some of what he had to put up with. Despite being told on his way that the people of Burma, he, he was told that they would resist Christianity. They would, um, but that didn't, that didn't stop him. Um, he waited for years and years preaching the gospel before anyone ever became a Christian. Um, he endured a 17-year imprisonment while he was there. He was put in prison by the Burmese people. And many other hardships, a lifelong battle um, in really high heat and difficult um, circumstances. He got malaria. He got dysentery. He got cholera. He lost two wives, one right after the other. He didn't go with two wives. <laughs> Um, and he lost seven of his 13 children and, and many colleagues that eventually were there with him ministering uh, died. So the same knowledge of God's sovereignty uh, that Paul had uh, inspired Adoniram Judson to go and labor there. And eventually people came to know Christ so it says, um, Paul says in Acts 18, 9 through 11, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So basically God was telling him, There are people in this city that I've chosen, and I'm going to save them. So you just go and be faithful to proclaim the gospel. And as you do, those people are going to come to faith. And that should give us great confidence that when we share the gospel, God is going to draw people to himself. So we, we, share, we share the gospel with confidence, knowing that our efforts will, in God's timing and in God's way, bear fruit. Uh, part B then, reason for to recognize the power in evangelism, it comes from God, is 
the power of the Holy Spirit. So God draws sinners to Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, And when Jesus spoke to the disciples on the mountain in Galilee, in Matthew 28, he told them to go into all the world and make disciples. Um, Eventually, they went into Jerusalem and they waited for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they suddenly became bold and they went out sharing the gospel. And Jesus had promised that. He promised that in Acts chapter 8, excuse me, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he's saying you'll receive power through the Holy Spirit. Um, So these apostles didn't do ministry in their own strength. They did ministry in the strength of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that same Holy Spirit fills all believers. If evangelism depended upon our own natural ability, there would be a reason for us to be despairing. Um, Which one of us can say with full confidence that we're really sufficient for such a serious responsibility of sharing the good news of Jesus? We, We can't. But the power of evangelism comes not from us, but from the Holy Spirit. From the instant the Spirit dwells in us, He gives us the power to witness. Be confident that if your life has been changed by the gospel, you're also equipped to share the gospel. So I tell people who have just become Christians, don't wait to share the gospel. Do it now. Do it right away. You don't even have to know the whole, you don't have to know the whole Bible. All you have to know is all that you knew to become a Christian. Now, Some of us, and this kind of goes back to what Michelle said earlier, some of us might feel that we're too sinful to be good witnesses for Christ. And it is true that our sin can hinder our Christian witness. It can thwart it. But it doesn't mean that we should delay evangelism until we reach some particular state of holiness. No, no. We should share the gospel right away. God delights in using weak instruments so that he alone gets the glory. So if you feel a lack of ability in your witness, then ask God for the grace to share the gospel. He'll give it. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And then in the next chapter, chapter 4, he says this really amazing thing in verse 7. But we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay. So he's saying, look, the gospel is, is a great treasure, but we actually, we're the ones carrying the gospel around. And we're actually weak and unimpressive, like a clay jar. And the reason that that's Good. The reason why God designed it that way is in the rest of the verse because it says, 
to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So if we were really impressive, people would think, oh, it's, it's because of them, not, the, not God and the message of the gospel. So in some ways, you know, our weaknesses are an advantage in sharing the gospel. They are an advantage. Is a contrast between the gospel and us. Part C, the power of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is the power to save. The Holy Spirit not only indwells us, the message of the gospel itself is powerful, able to save all those who believe it. So for example, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God is like a sword. That's power. Um, Paul also says in chapter 1 of Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel is this powerful message. It's able to save because it reveals how we can obtain righteousness and justifies us in the sight of God. The gospel is not some kind of magic wand that we wave over unbelievers so that the power of God springs from it and automatically converts all of them. But it does mean that the gospel is the power of God for salvation and not our own eloquent power or our persuasiveness. God is sovereign and he has chosen some people. He's going to save them when we share the gospel. Let me stop there and ask if there are any questions. Any questions? So we can, God's sovereignty, our confidence in God's sovereignty can help us overcome our fears of evangelism. Um, recognizing the power of the Holy Spirit in evangelism helps us overcome our fears. Recognizing that the power is in the gospel message itself helps us overcome our fears. So lastly here, Success in evangelism is part D, and we should ask the question, how do we measure success in evangelism? Is it if a person actually becomes a Christian, then we're successful? And if they don't become a Christian, then we've failed? Would it be that? I think not. Actually, success in evangelism is just sharing the gospel with the aim to persuade. So if you do that, you've been successful. It's up to God to bring the fruit. Our job is just to be faithful in pointing men and women to Jesus Christ. Conversions are the fruit that God alone gives according to his own counsel. Some of us will plant a seed of the gospel message in people and other people might come along and repeat that gospel to that person and they may still not believe and another person comes along and shares the gospel with them. Um, but it's God who causes the person to become a Christian. And we should really be thankful for that. 
Um, so be faithful and trust God for the results. Just share the good news. Part four, then, evangelism is a discipline in the Christian life. Evangelism is a natural overflow of the Christian life, but we must not just wait for witnessing opportunities to happen. We should go looking for them. We should set out with intentions, just like we maybe wake up in the morning with intentions to read our Bible and grow. Then we should also set out with intentions to share the gospel. And some of that happens if you're a parent. If you're a parent, um, sharing the gospel with your children is one of the most important parenting roles uh, that parents have. It says in Ephesians chapter 6, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, but not all opportunities for witnessing are going to come naturally, are they? Um, evangelism is a discipline that we have to cultivate. It involves deliberate effort on our part to invest time and energy in the lives of unbelievers in order to share the gospel with them. So in Colossians, we learn about the excellencies of the all-sufficient Christ. He's the image of the invisible God. Uh, it says about him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And Paul keeps going. These great truths about Christ should stir our hearts, of course, to bear witness for Christ. And so it's no surprise that towards the end of the, of the book of Colossians, Paul exhorts Christians to be fervent in evangelism. And he asks for prayer for himself. So in chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, he says, at the same time, pray also for us that we would be safe. Now, does he say that? He actually doesn't. He never asks for people to pray for his safety. What does he pray for? He says, pray that the God, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. And then he says for them, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So he's addressing their evangelistic efforts as well. And we can, we can learn some important uh, aspects to the discipline of evangelism, even just from these verses. First of all, we should pray. We should pray for opportunities. We should pray for boldness for ourselves and for the rest of the church. We should pray for our non-Christian friends, for God to draw them to himself. Prayer is so very, very important in evangelism. Second, we need to be wise in the way we act towards unbelievers. We need to watch our lives and make sure that our actions don't undermine the credibility of the gospel. So if we're living really 
ungodly lives for people to see, that's going to be really, that's going to work against people around us believing the good news. Because they'll look at us and they'll look at themselves and they'll go, oh, there's not much difference between them and me. I don't know, the gospel doesn't seem to make a difference in a person's life. Third, Paul urges us to make the most of every opportunity. So he says, don't, I mean, basically he's saying, don't just sit there waiting for an opportunity to fall into your lap, but actively pursue opportunities for witness. So, you know, the time is short. We don't know what tomorrow holds for different people or for ourselves for that matter. And this means that we should have a sense of urgency in sharing the gospel. We should make time for others. Even though we have busy schedules, we should carve out time to build relationships with non-Christians and share the good news with them. Let me, um, let me stop right there um, and ask if you all have any questions. Nope, none from Ashwin. Well. I guess, I guess my question is how would you look like if there's no, it's not that the person, let's say, professes to be an unbeliever, but they profess to be a believer. But if, and like they profess to be a believer and they know all the ABCs, right? They will tell you the gospel and everything, but there's just like aspects of their lives that mm. that doesn't seem don't seem to line up with yes. are they really a Christian? Yes, yeah, so then how would evangelism like in that aspect? How do you respond to people like that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I think I would be surprised if people actually really knew the gospel well, but were living completely, you know, a life that's opposed to the Christian faith. But let's say maybe just for the sake of argument, there are people who maybe they grew up in church, right? And they, they can tell you the gospel. Even then, oftentimes those people get it all tangled up in their head because there's spiritual, they, they don't have spiritual insights. Um, I think that Oftentimes, reading the Bible with them is, is really important um, for them to see that when Jesus announced the good news, people followed him, their lives changed. Uh, and, I mean, the tricky part is, is that someone who knows the gospel, meant, you know, uh, just kind of the information of the gospel, but isn't living for Christ, oftentimes doesn't want to read the Bible because they intuitively know this is going to be convicting to me. <laughs> but I would say bringing them to church and 
where the Bible's explained and proclaimed or getting them to read it with you is really important. I think, I think uh, maybe asking them good questions like, um, what difference does it make in your life that Jesus is your Lord? What difference has it made in your life? Because if it's not making any difference, then maybe he's not your Lord. Maybe you've not declared him to be your Lord. You're not living like that. Um, so those are, those are some things. I think reading scripture, kind of confronting them, which confronts them with the call to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Um, you know, at the same time, sometimes people will just say they're a Christian, of course, and they don't want to have anything to do with you or church or maybe focus ministry on campus. They don't want to come to that because they know. They know they're not following Jesus. Um, and sometimes we just have to keep praying for those people, praying that somehow God begins to work in them. And we may be kind of gently move on to someone who shows more interest. Not giving up hope, but waiting. You know, I mean, Jesus told his disciples, go into a village, proclaim the message, and if they won't receive you and the message, then move on. And um, yeah, sometimes with people, we need to kind of move on. So... Keep praying for them. Things change. So you never know. All right. That's a good question. Yeah. Anything else? Any other questions? What are the different forms of How does evangelism, let me make sure I understand your question, Michelle. What does evangelism look like in Dubai versus evangelism somewhere else? Oh, not exactly. I just, different forms of, forms of evangelism. Um, different forms of evangelism? Yeah. Um, well, let me just say this, that living a godly life in front of people who are not Christians is not evangelism, even though that's important. That can undermine evangelism if we're not living a godly life in front of them. But to live a godly life, no one can become a Christian just by seeing you follow Jesus. They can get interested, but they, they, they need to know the information that the Bible teaches about Jesus, and they need to be kind of confronted with the decision. Am I going to repent of my sin and trust in Jesus? So you have to communicate verbally or maybe in written form. So the Bible evangelizes because the Bible gives the information and 
asks the question, essentially, will you follow Jesus? So evangelism, evangelism is basically communicating the gospel to anyone. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And Dubai, I think, I mean, I've been here 21 years, and I think Dubai is a fantastic place to do evangelism, to be honest. I, you know, because there's so many non-Christians here, first of all, and people here generally um, expect that religion is some part of your culture. Okay? So our Muslim friends, even if they're not good Muslims, or Hindu friends, even if they're not really living according to Hinduism and practicing, so to speak. Still, those people aren't, um, they're not uh, opposed to the idea of talking about religion or considering the fact that religion is a part of their culture. And that's different than, let's say, Europe, a lot of Europe, or even uh, parts of North America, uh, where people can tend to be like, oh, religion, I don't want to talk about that, that's private. But here it's different. You can talk to any, almost anybody about their, their religious background. With Europeans, it's a little harder. <laughs> Though not impossible, and we should keep trying. All right? I think I was asking you to mind. It's funny because in my former church, the, the pastor, one of the pastors, said that um, no one should, should ever evangelize to anyone in Dubai because it is prohibited in Dubai. Because it's prohibited? Yeah. Well, see, that's where I would say that we should do what Jesus tells us to do and not what the government tells us to do. Okay? Yeah. And, um, and I don't think there are actually rules that say don't evangelize in Dubai. There's rules against, um, I think there may be a law on the books against what's called proselytizing. But proselytizing often has the sense of forcing someone to convert to a different religion. But we don't even believe that's possible. We don't believe that you can force a person to become a Christian. God has to work in that person's life. Right? I don't even believe that's possible. And even if the government did say you can't share the gospel, and there are governments that say that very clearly, and they're very aggressive to enforce those laws, unlike here. I haven't, I mean, I, it's like been 15 years or so since I've heard of anyone getting in trouble for sharing the gospel. And I, I think I typically would, just being a pastor. So I haven't heard of that, but... You know, the apostles in, in the book of Acts were told, stop talking about Jesus. And what did they say to the authorities? They said, okay, you all decide for us. What do you think we should do? Obey you or obey God? Okay, right? That was their question. And they're basically saying, no, we're going to obey God. <laughs> we have to stand before him on the day of judgment. Uh, you're, you're, you're mere mortals. You're going to die. So we should obey God, even when governments tell us 
to do something else. That's the only time that we're, we should break the law, so to speak. But like I said, I'm not even confident that we're breaking laws if we share the gospel here. Well, let me read this last quote. Let's look at it with me. It's there on the inside um, at the very bottom. This is from Charles Spurgeon, who was a great evangelist and pastor. I count nothing to be worthy of your pastor's life and soul and energy, but the winning of you to Christ. Nothing but your salvation can ever make me feel that my heart's desire is granted. I ask every worker here to see to this that he never turns aside from shooting at this target and at the center of this target too, namely that he may win souls for Christ and see them born to God and washed in the fountain filled with blood. Let the workers' hearts ache and yearn and their voices cry till their throats are hoarse, but let them judge that they have accomplished nothing whatever until, at least in some cases, men are really saved. As the fisherman longs to take the fish in his net, as the hunter pants to bear home his spoil, as the mother pines to clasp her lost child to her bosom, so do we faint for the salvation of souls. And we must have them, or we are ready to die. Save them, O Lord. Save them for Christ's sake. So that's Charles Spurgeon, and he saw lots of people become Christians. And I actually wrote an article that's published on the internet, which doesn't take a lot these days to get something published on the internet, but six benefits of evangelism for discipleship. In other words, how evangelism helps you grow as a Christian. And I wrote, and I'll just briefly read them out, evangelism helps us keep the gospel central in our lives. Because if we're sharing the gospel, then we'll be thinking about it more frequently. Number two, evangelism deepens our understanding of the most fundamental truths of Scripture. I promise if you are practiced at explaining the good news to non-Christians, you will understand your faith better. So if you, if you can articulate it, and, you, and so if you practice articulating it with people. Number three, properly motivated evangelism grows our love for God and our neighbor. So our love for God and love for people grows. Evangelism prompts unexpected questions and objections from non-Christians, which can deepen our faith. So sometimes if they ask you a hard question, you may not know the answer to it, but if you're active in evangelism, you're going to find out the answer, and then your faith will be stronger, and you'll be able to answer their question. Well, I'm going to stop there, but and I'll, would you all got, would you guys, I printed out some of those. Yeah, I want to hand them out. That'd be great. All right, you guys, that's all I have for this particular class. Can I ask one more question? There's all these resources on the back. Mm-hmm. Are there any that you would put a, an extra star next to? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, there's one that's not on here. We should include it. Sure. Um, called Evangelism. A very boring title. By Max Stiles. So they're speaking of Jesus here, but his book, his little red book called Evangelism, I think is great because it's especially about doing evangelism together as a church. Together. Is it part of Mind Map? 
It's, yeah, it's one of those nine marks colorful books. I don't have any of them down here, but yeah, I think that's a really great one. Um, what is the Gospel is a good one. A really good one. If you haven't read that, you should read it. Um, I really like Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Um, so, yeah, those are three that I really, really like.